Dr. John, to have you back on again. I am so excited. Everybody, welcome back to the We the Patriots podcast. And with me, I already alluded to it, we have Dr. John. I'll allude to you as John the rest of the show. You are one of my better friends in this world. How's everything doing today? Doing great. Uh, beautiful weather this week and uh, enjoying it. Awesome, man. Uh, I know you've been doing a bunch of baseball in your own life. I did want to just jump on it because it's been a topic on my mind. Haven't had too many people to talk about it. Um, it's been a few months, I think, at least a couple months since we last spoke, and we kind of dove into the rule changes. As I've struggled to find where the Yankees are playing and watch them, I will say, have you been able to watch enough of it to see any of that kind of settle in, see it fade away as it becomes normal? What has what has your outlook on it been since you've watched a little bit of baseball this year? Yeah, I mean, I... I... The last time we talked, I was not a fan of most of the new rules, and I, mm -hmm. my opinion has not changed dramatically. Um, I think that one, a couple of things we're seeing, I think pitchers have adapted a little better to the pitch clock timer. Uh, At least the starters. The yeah. starters seem definitely locked in. Yeah. Um, that said, I think that still in, in key situations, like uh, in Garrett Cole's last start, there were a couple times, especially after they changed catchers and Higgy came in, um, they can think they hit for Rortbit and then he came in and they, they kind of weren't on the same page. And he was down to like one second when they were trying to settle on a pitch because he kept shaking him off. And I mean, I don't know how much of that was like, okay, let's, we got to just throw something or if it, if it actually worked out. But um, I, I feel like there's in those crucial game moments, those are important decisions. And if we, we like to think of baseball as the thinking man's game. And if we're taking that element out of it, like you're just do something for the sake of providing action for a bunch of attention starved, uh, you know, pseudo fans, then you know, what are we accomplishing? I also think that it's interesting that a lot of the teams that were predicted to do well, that were kind of veteran heavy, you look at the Mets, um, the Yankees, the Red Sox, the Angels, you know, teams that were supposed to be really, really strong teams have mm -hmm. kind of been flat this year. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that these veteran laden teams have not adjusted as well. Whereas some of these younger teams right, uh, that had guys who were playing in the minors over the last couple of years who experienced the pitch clock, who kind of got to, got to practice in a way mm -hmm. for a few years with these rules some of these younger teams, Baltimore and, um, you know, for a while, Cincinnati was really doing great, completely out of the blue. Well, why? well half their team was in the minor leagues last year. And that, uh, I think, probably helped them a little bit. I think it has evened out a bit. Um, but when you look at guys like, um, I mean, Stanton's just struggling. But uh, somebody like a DJ LeMahieu, like when he's, he's such a good hitter that this is not – you know, a typical season Rizzo, I think the same way, like there now, whether there's other issues like with Rizzo, the concussions or whatever, there could be all sorts of things going on there that we don't know about. But um, when you see guys who have consistently hit over 300 in their career, batting 230, 240, 
something has clearly changed. And it's kind of a perverse thing because Major League Baseball clearly wanted the games to go faster, and they got that. The games For are sure. It's, without a doubt. It's been successful. If their goal was just to shorten the games, they've done it. But if they want a better on-field product and more hits and more home runs and more action, they're not getting that. Um, you know, the Yankees have struck out, what, 15, 14, 17, whatever times over the last – I mean, they, they won last night with striking out, I don't know, 17 times, I think. I did um, want to say, and how many strikeouts did Cole have in that last struggling start? I saw three. Like, that's not a normal Cole start. Yeah. Although I think he's also probably trying to pace himself. Like, I think he's like, hey, you know, let him let him hit it because I need to go eight innings because – who else do we got? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I did want to dive a little deeper, though, into that uh, the veteran and the younger team thing, because I think there might be a point there, too. Although some of those teams do have, uh, you know, experience in the minors with a lot of that stuff, you think about just the, you know, like the Astros who are just continually doing well, not to say they're world beaters right now, but they're still one of the better teams in, in the league for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think just being overall a younger team lets you pace a little better in this environment. I was thinking for sure with the younger teams, they're going to be able to weather the faster paced baseball for quite a bit longer. That, and I think that some of the other rules, like the larger bases encourages more running, uh, Hmm. more running game. Again, the younger the team, because you're not, even if they were capable of stealing bases, you're not going to have guys like judge who, when he's before he had the toe injury, he certainly was capable of stealing a base now and then, but you don't want to risk injury having him steal right. 30, 40 times a year, you know, teams that are filled with young, fast guys, that's plays into their hand a little more. So mm-hmm. I think it's a combination of the, that uh, experience with these new rules. And then also just the the fact that the rules were trying to generate a, a quickness and an action that suits that style of baseball better. Uh, but I think the Astros are an interesting case because they're, you know they're in second place in the uh, in their division, but they're they did not look like the world beater Astros. I mean the Yankees split a no. series with them, but I felt like maybe it's a little Astros related PTSD. But like I thought those couple games that the Yankees were winning, I thought they were going to end up you know giving them away, mm-hmm. and they didn't. They actually were able to hold hold on to a couple of those games, and uh, so it was kind of encouraging that. The Astros are not as invincible as they may have been in in recent years. Yeah, for sure. I, I think that's fair to say, too. And uh, I think uh, one of the last things I want to say on baseball is, do you think with that Astros in mind, do you think that Texas can hold on to their number one spot? I mean, they kind of came out of not out of nowhere, but they really did put the money into the business and it worked out this year, it seems. Yeah, um, I think you're seeing a little bit of at least again this is just my sense of how standings are moving a little bit some of these teams that jumped out to early fast starts like the rangers like the reds are coming back to earth a little bit and the then rays. Yeah. the rays yeah and then some of the teams that are you know were built to be and expected to win are surging back a little bit you know they've started to come out yeah, I I wouldn't quite put the Yankees in that category yet, but I think the Astros fall in that um, that category. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the NL Central has closed up quite a bit. Um, so I think so as well. 
the Mets obviously kind of sold the farm, but I, I kind of was thinking that they might have made a run at some point too if they had uh, kept that team together. So, um, yeah, a lot of injuries hitting them. I think. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's defeating to a point, but it's interesting to see. I'm really excited to see, honestly, Baltimore's got a good looking team. Mm-hmm. Um, if the Yankees can't pull it out, I, I have no problem trying to see how far they go. Uh, yeah. And, you know, it's amazing how much one player can make a difference. I mean, you saw Adley. Yeah. Adley Rush. Absolutely. I mean, like, that was clearly the inflection point at which the Orioles became a much more likely contender um when i think it's fair to say though when you add not only a defensive catcher because he is one but one that uh also rallies the offense and just brings the team together i think he's definitely got that captain's mentality and just it makes everybody better around him and when you have that quality coming from a catcher you can't ask for much more and the athleticism he's a catcher batting leadoff Mm -hmm. i mean it's right there it tells you a lot about what kind of player he is and uh you know, and again, it's one of those things where it's a different approach. The Orioles develop have they have to rely on developing. Well, I mean, Angela, the way that they, yeah, yeah. Like they, they could they could afford to spend, but they don't. Um, so the way they've approached it is to develop those young guys and wait for them to come up. The Yankees will, you know, their strategy is wait till Rushman becomes available on the free agent market when he's thirty years old, and then try to buy him. Well, at thirty years old, he's not going to be a catcher batting lead off he's not going to be doing right. quite as much you know athletically dynamic stuff as he is now but it's that's that's the yankees approach and but you know you, you talk about the um where the yankees are now and over the last well 20 years really um 09 being the exception but like they've pretty mm-hmm. much bought a lot of their talent you know yeah. aside from judge um which is a huge exception but you have judge and cano pretty much and yeah you look back over the past 20 years it's not much else yeah and and there's other guys they've gotten very early in their careers and kept them and stuff like that but you know really starting with when they had to re- start replacing the the core four guys oh yeah it all went out of the system and and then they've they've developed a lot of players but they've They've hung on elsewhere because the Yankees had, mm-hmm. you know, you had good players um, go. I mean, it it made sense when they had a better or a really established player in front of them. Like Jorge Posada was was catcher, so Brad Osmus had to go somewhere else, and he ended up having a great major league career, but there was no room for him right. in in the Yankee system. But then you, know, you look around the major leagues now, and there's an awful lot of Yankee farmhands that you know, ended up having pretty good careers. And they're still ongoing, yep. So it's it is definitely hard to uh hard to look at as a Yankees fan. I hope that they turn around. It was tough for me to see, at least I know I'm belaboring the uh the Yankee point, but no deal at the deadline. Like Yeah. You you, you didn't sell, you didn't buy, you sat there. You picked I guess the worst one. I would say um the the Cashman approach, and this is not, I mean, you think about the last several deadlines, we really haven't done much in any of those deadlines. And I think Cashman's got his attitude, which is, you know, we build this team in the off season and we mm. get the best guys in there. And, and it, to some degree, I, I don't fault him for this notion is that I'm not going to take a knee jerk 
reaction and go get somebody who's marginally better statistically than what we've got now. And in the process, eat a whole bunch of salary mm-hmm. to replace somebody who may be a little bit underperforming. Like, you know, we got, for example, Rizzo on this deal because we thought he was the best first baseman available and we were willing to pay him. If we're going to go bring in another first baseman, not only we're we giving up prospects to get the first baseman, then we've got to get rid of Rizzo, either pay him his contract to be a bench player or trade him somewhere else, eating a huge portion of his salary, which is what the Mets were doing. So the Mets are paying a whole bunch of guys to go play for other teams against them for the next two years and then going to have to go spend more, even more money. And right. maybe Steve Cohen doesn't care because he's got gazillion dollars, but it's not a really responsible way to run a baseball team either. So uh, I, I don't, I mean, if you look at the Yankees alignment, I mean, you could put a former all-star at every position. Um, you could put a gold Glover at, you could put a lineup there, I think about six or seven positions with a gold Glover. Um, I think you got three gold Glover, three, three guys who have won a gold glove at third base on the team. <laughs> um yeah which is crazy. So it's not like they're, they've got, uh, you know, a shortage of talented players. It's just that there's the performance isn't there. So in some ways it's kind of a, a very conservative approach to the trade deadline, which. Yep. Yeah, it's his I mean, style. Yep. It is his style. And, and I think if there was a really glaring hole, like if like Cole had gone down with injury or something and and yet they were still in it, then I think you would have seen him more likely to go out there and say, you know what, we absolutely need to deal for a, a number one starter. But I think he's right. looking at it and saying, hey, I've got Cole, I've got Rodon, I've got Cortez. That's my playoff rotation, assuming they're all healthy. <laughs> I mean, right. I don't, he probably wasn't expecting the Herman thing to happen, but like, you know, at the, at the trade deadline itself, there was not the – that would have been a good guy to trade away. Yeah, and but there's, it's, there's not. There wasn't the clear like hole in the correct in the, in the on the roster. I mean, you could say okay, they could improve in left field. Well, true, um, but you know, you're also carrying Judge, who's a little hobbled, and you've got Stanton, who's not very good anymore defensively so you're kind of tying yeah. up one like two two positions in the lineup between these two guys guaranteed yeah. guaranteed and then you know you've also got infielders coming out of your ears like if they're if they all get healthy you still have too many infielders to play them all um because you'd have LeMahieu, donaldson torres volpe yep. and, and rizzo um so that's one too many. And then there's, then there's still IKF who's one of the few guys who's actually hitting. So you're going to take IKF out to go. Right. It doesn't like, I mean, honestly, the one weakest link, if you will, in the lineup is the catcher spot, but you know, you oh, need yeah. Without a doubt, but you need your defensive. So, yeah. And it's kind of funny. Like one a radical solution would be to put IKF back behind there. Cause he came back, up. back at catching. Yeah. yeah. That's um, that, that is radical, but also not that radical. It would, it would probably improve the lineup. Now I don't know where he is defensively all these years later, and um, and also yeah, I, hasn't worked with the pitchers. So that would be such a downgrade from what we have defensively. But 
Yeah, I don't know what the what the mixture is there, but the Yankees have a long road ahead of them, I think is fair to say. Mm-hmm. Um, I- hey, everyone, just wanted to take a quick break in between topics, really, for this show. And just a quick reminder for everybody to please subscribe, like the show, and share it with your friends. If you think that it's meaningful or even if you want to make fun of us, um, you can find a whole bunch of deeper content and more stuff like this over on our website over at wethepatriotsmedia.com and you'll see a whole bunch of stuff here that we have going on over there and for now i'd love to send you right back over to the show what a sad truth um i did want to jump into I, I know we kind of talked a little bit last time about your background in education what you what you studied and what you also teach even up to this point but I wanted to ask a few more questions in that in that kind of space and see where your mind kind of tends to. Uh, first off, I did want to make sure you studied a lot of U.S. history in preparation for your your doctorate, correct? Uh, well, I uh, so in college, undergraduate, I ended up majoring in government, but I I graduated with a I had enough credits to be either a government major or a, a history. Major, today. you're still here. So if you click that, okay. tab, you're all good. No, that was my fault. I, I I clicked the tab. I minimized it by accident. Um, the uh, um, so I I ended up writing a senior thesis in government, but uh, I basically was a history major, if you will, in college. And then okay. I I taught U.S. history um, in high school for seven years after six years, I guess, of of history. Um, after that. So then when I went to my doctorate, uh, it was more in policy, education policy. Um, and we touched okay. on sorts of things related to the history of education and, and how instruction takes place in, in all subjects. It wasn't explicitly in history education, but it's a, uh, um, but I have, you know, decent amount of historical background. Yeah. And I know it's something that uh, we, we do talk a lot about in our our off-air conversations, but is there any type of uh, type of thing that got you interested, or one type of era of U.S. history that kind of engages your brain the most? I mean, my favorite to talk about and to teach is, is the uh, the kind of colonial revolutionary period. Um, okay, it's uh, and I think a lot of it has to do with kind of that that overlap. I was very mu- much involved in history, but also very interested in government, and that was. The point at which our government, you know, was formed, and right. all all of the the establishment of um, our institutions occurred during that period, um, and everything that we have today was kind of really traced back to that point. And so, to understand where we are today, I, I think that's the, the really the critical moment to understand what were they thinking and how did that period in our history play out. So that, that was my favorite. Um, there, I mean, there's, there's great stories throughout our history. Mm. Uh, I have obviously a great interest in world war two because my grandfather was, both of my grandfathers were in it. One in one in each theater. Um, my, uh, my dad's father was in uh, the European theater and, and lived to be 102 and was telling his stories right up to the very end. So, um, you know, had a lot of that World War II uh, 
uh, history also kind of steeped into me from an early age, but uh, of of the periods of American history that I, I find really um, fascinating, the, the ones that I would love to be able to jump into and just kind of be a fly on the wall for a while is that is that early early American revolutionary mm. period. Now that time that time frame of American history, are you also interested in the actual pre-American, so the colonial American? Uh, just to come up and kind of the whole institution of American colonies all across the board. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, the, the, the settlement of America, the settlement patterns, uh, so mm. much of, of who we are today in terms of our, our politics, our culture, our language patterns. Um, it's all our, our musical tastes. I mm. mean, a lot of it is traced back to those settlement patterns and, and what the nature of the different regions were. Um, you know, you look at the, uh, this is a simple example, um, uh, country music, yeah, more okay. in the fiddle, more in the guitar, string instruments. What, where is that sound? You, well, you trace it back to the, the mountain music that, that kind of emerged in the rural areas of the South. At that time, what was the South and the West? Um, the, uh, which had its roots in the Scots-Irish tradition, which is where those settlers okay. came from. And so if you listen to uh, the string band music, the, the quote-unquote mountain music um, of America today, and then you listen to, say, Irish string band music, there's a lot of similarity. There is a huge amount of overlap there. And we're 300 years removed from that Scotch-Irish settlement, but those cultural uh, uh, ideas and traditions have been preserved. And so that's one of the great things about America is that you get all these different, um, you know, groups of people who have come here bringing ideas about politics, ideas about culture, mm -hmm. ideas about religion, and how those settlement patterns have influenced you know, the, the different parts of our country, you know, we're, we're here in New Jersey, you know, a lot of Italian uh, influence and, you know, Catholic church is uh, a huge factor uh, in Absolutely. going back into the earlier parts of the 20th century in politics and uh, in civil society and education, um, which, you know, or in New York city, the, the Catholic school system was, you know, a huge player in terms of creating culture, creating society, creating uh, who, who we were as educated people. That was never the case in, say, you know, Iowa or Arkansas, because that, they just didn't have that concentration of, uh, of immigrant Catholics there. So, uh, you know, all those tracing those settlement patterns is, is really fascinating to me. So I, I consider myself a political historian, but I do uh, I do enjoy looking at the cultural uh, mm -hmm. histories as well. well. One thing I really wanted to ask about, especially in regards to the settlement patterns, is one of the things that I had an issue with going into college when I took a course on, uh, it was specifically U.S. history up to, I believe, right up to the revolution. So went through that period and stopped, I think, right at around eight, uh, 1800 or so, mm -hmm. something like that, I think. And so the way that uh, he was teaching this course was not terrible, but I specifically prodded the professor 
on Roanoke and the settlement of the island. Did you do any research at all during your studies on that specific settlement? Yep, absolutely. Okay, so what did you come up with at all before I ask any further questions? Well, the uh, uh, <laughs> so uh, Roanoke, of course, was established uh, even prior to Jamestown, prior to the to the Plymouth Colony, and it was <laughs> uh, sort of a mildly ill-conceived settlement, uh, and this was still under the reign of, of Queen Elizabeth. Sir Walter Raleigh was one of her uh, favorite um, courtiers, and so she mm -hmm. indulged him a lot of his requests until she had him beheaded later on. Uh, you know, things happen. Uh, but at that Actually, time, back then, yeah, there was a, a a decent amount of question about whether the the English or the Spanish would get would be able to get a foothold in the northern parts of North America. The English and the Spanish were um, were kind of rivals at that point. Um, they had been at war, and they actually were at war in that 1580s period, um, leading up to the defeat of the Armada in 1588. So trying to establish a British foothold in North America was uh, certainly a political and strategic move. Um, it was almost seen as a military imperative that they have some type of settlement there. And, and Sir Walter Raleigh kind of probably wasn't the best equipped to do it, but he convinced Queen Elizabeth to let him try. So they had this settlement, but the the folks that they sent over in that at first group were not mm. particularly well suited. Um, and to, pretty ill equipped, I I believe, in every very, sense of very, very much so. There was this notion that that gentlemen would make for better settlers, and this actually carried through even into Jamestown. They would have these people who were often second and third sons of noble type families who weren't necessarily going to inherit on their own, but they had kind of been used to living a sort of exalted lifestyle where they were treated as nobility, if you will. And mm. then they come to America and, you know, when you're 40 people stuck on a little barrier island with limited supplies of everything and you got to go fend for yourself, well, there is no servants around to go, you know, bring you your lunch. You kind of got to go figure it out. Mm. Um, and there were nobody wanted to work. There was this notion that of the Americas were filled with gold. So they all wanted to go try to find gold um, and find thought it would fall in their laps too. Yeah, pretty much. And it's like, you know, well, we're, we're just going to go for a little walk out into the woods and we're just going to find a, you know, the lucky charms guy with a pot of gold or something. I, I don't know what they had in mind, but, it was, <laughs> um, but it clearly never occurred that way. And then things got really desperate. Um, yeah. The, there's, in terms of the disappearance of it, um, the uh, the governor um, White, I believe, um, if I'm remembering correctly, um, had had gone back to England and um, left some instructions and to you know here's what you're supposed to do. And we'll be back in the in the spring with more provisions, um, and then of course he returned and and everyone was gone, including his own daughter, and um, the only evidence they found they kind of the place was deserted they found this little burned off post that had this word croatoan kind of etched on it and um there were for many years a lot of theories about what that meant there was a, a place 
known as sort of Croatoan. There was also a tribe that were known as the Croatoans. Like, to be were they attacked by them? Did they go join? Mm-hmm. Them? Did they go to this other place? Um, they there was no trace of them. They couldn't find them. Never heard, seen or heard from again. Um, many many years later, there were uh, it was a when Europeans finally moved west into the hills of the Carolinas, they found a, a, a native group um, called the Lumbees, uh, who actually exhibited some European trait, blue eyes and fair fair skin and fair hair. Hmm. And they started kind of thinking about, well, what are the connections here? And I believe some of the, my understanding is that some of the recent D- DNA evidence has suggested that 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 there are actually connections to some of those early Roanoke settlers because they've traced them back to relatives on in England. Um, wow. and so it's, that's actually kind of one of those cool, like it was a historical mystery for ever and ever. And and now they have a, a very probable sense of what, what actually happened to them. They Now, whether they cool. We don't know. What we don't know is how it all went down. Like, did they go begging for help and they were taken in? Were they um taken in as hostage or yeah taken in as prisoners or uh, servants or or what did they um did they stumble into some type of tribal war where they they took sides and then they ended up joining with the side that they had you know supported or all that part is unclear but um Mm. yeah it's it's one of those uh it's actually from a historian point of view it's kind of a cool story in that no, it's really cool. We, uh, we didn't have an answer for, for so long, and now we, we kind of do. That's, uh, But you answered even the question that I was trying to ask that professor, which is so interesting, because you were interested in it, clearly. He wasn't. And it was I think it was a big part of his narrative that he was using for the course so that he kind of just shoved it aside. Mm-hmm. But my point asking was, you know, there's been evidence that there was spearheads on there, uh, not spearheads, but arrowheads and stuff like this. So they may have been attacked. They may have been escorted off, but there was no remains found. I was basically trying to get to, and he never let get there, but what do you think happened to these people? And he essentially said they ran out of supplies, starved themselves, and something ate them. I was like, I, and, I, and for a long time I find it hard, yeah. Yeah, I mean that was one of the possibilities for a long time. I mean there there was a hmm. very real possibility of starvation. It certainly happened to Jamestown, um, and they, given the number of supplies that they had, that they probably would have been destined that same way. Um, and of course, yep. the when the a lot of these uh, the settle various settlements occurred, they did not always make you know find friendly uh, welcome from whatever tribes happened to be in that area. So um, all of those possibilities were out there for, but um, yeah. uh, I appreciate it. It seems like this mystery has been at least partially solved and that we know where they ended up, whether how it all went down, we don't don't really know, but. Yeah. But I mean, that definitely clears up the image in my head though. So now you did, you clearly were all backed up for that. So you looked into that. Did was there any other settlements, early settlements that were more intriguing to you as you started to or continued your research? I think the um, the, the Plymouth Colony is is a fascinating one, um, and also the juxtaposition of of Jamestown and Plymouth is always really interesting. Mm-hmm. And I think it it says a lot about settlement patterns and and motivations for what these people were doing. Jamestown was the royal colony. It was being established um, for 
kind of political for profit reasons. Um, right. Almost strictly. Yeah. Right. I mean, they, the, uh, the, it was a company that established Jamestown, the Virginia company, the Plymouth colony on the other hand were, were separatists. They just, they were looking for a new home. They, they really had no great, um, you know, love for anything that was going on in mm-hmm. England. In fact, they had been, the pilgrims had actually left, um, uh, or attempted to leave England a couple times, uh, and were first arrested, uh, and thrown in jail. And then they eventually escaped to Holland. Uh, they mm-hmm. lived in, in the Port university city of Leiden for, um, about a decade. Uh, and then, then they made the journey to America. So we, we always kind of have this notion that the pilgrims came from England. They were English, but they actually had became from Holland. So they went from Holland. That's pretty interesting. And they had chartered uh, two vessels, the Mayflower and another ship called Speedwell. And they mm-hmm. they loaded up in, in Holland. They come over um, and the plan was to resupply in, uh, in England and then continue on across the Atlantic. The problem is the Speedwell was having all sorts of trouble. It, it had it was taking on so much water at one point that they were in danger of sinking. They kind of limped back to port, and uh, they eventually uh, decided to scrap the Speedwell and at least that that part of the crossing. And then the everybody who some people decided like, hey, look, we had enough of this. This is. At that point, we do not want to drown. Uh, so therefore, like we're we're just going to stay in England and take our chances. Um, so everybody who still wanted to go uh, got on the uh, the Mayflower, and then they made their crossing. Uh, the original plan was to plant the colony in "quote unquote" the northern parts of Virginia. In fact, that's actually how the Mayflower mm-hmm. Compact uh, refers to it. Um, there is reasonable suspicion that Dutch interests who had their eyes on New Netherlands, New York, New Jersey area, mm-hmm. uh, encouraged the the Northern. captain Flower to to st- steer considerably further north, mm-hmm. uh, and so the landfall that they made was much further north than they wanted to. But the uh, the the motivation for going was completely different. These were much more uh, laborer class people. Um, but I think one thing that gets lost in in the uh, the historical telling of it is that they get lumped together with the uh, Massachusetts Bay Colony. Correct. The, yes. The Pilgrims established the Plymouth Colony uh, in 1620. The May- Massachusetts Bay Colony was up in Boston ten years later in 1630, and the the Massachusetts Bay Colony were the Puritans, and their mission was to purify the Church of England to kind of rid it of um a, a lot of what they saw as kind of corruption and corruption in the church and right papal yeah. influence and all sorts of things like that the the pilgrims on the other hand were what they referred to as separatists they just wanted to separate they weren't trying to fix the church of england they weren't trying to purify they just said like leave us the heck alone like we want to be alone and so the they had their own way they kind of wanted a a more personal relationship with god it, in some ways, it actually kind of sets the, um, they're more on the, the the sort of ilk of some of the later uh, religious groups like the Quakers and the Shakers and whatever that came over with um, a much more personal 
relationship with God as their as their primary objective, not necessarily in the establishment of a church, whereas the Massachusetts Bay Colony was clearly establishing a church. It was a theocracy um, where they're right, and and they were very rejecting of any other uh, any other ideology, if I'm not mistaken. Absolutely, they they. I mean, they banished a whole bunch of people, Roger Williams, Anne Hutchinson, they they were all banished out of Mass Bay because for not being Puritan and pure enough. Whereas the, the Plymouth people were were much more, you know, sure, everybody's welcome here. In fact, one one reason they called it the Plymouth Colony was that they had put back into the port at Plymouth. Uh, mm. and that was a lot more uh, of a welcoming place than they'd ever experienced in England before that. Um, they, uh, the pilgrims all came from an area, um, kind of along the, the Humber estuary. Um, there was a village called Scrooby. It's kind of where Nottinghamshire and Yorkshire and North Yorkshire kind of all come together. That's where most of the, the Mayflower pilgrims were from originally. And then, then they went to Holland and they, whatever, but that was a very, um, closed kind of rigid type of society up there um everybody in your village knew everybody else in your village and you kind of thought had to follow the rules otherwise you were the outcast when they they stop in plymouth to to resupply to get rid of the speedwell and all that kind of stuff they were actually welcomed warmly and they they kind of were like this is england like we're used to being persecuted what's going on here but but it was a port city and port cities always had foreigners and strangers and people with different beliefs and different religions and they kind of were like yeah whatever you know we'll live and let live and part of why they called the the colony the plymouth colony was because of the the warm reception they got the warm interactions at that wow. thing when they weren't they weren't from there that's where they but they had been welcomed there that's that's actually really interesting because i had no idea about that so did uh, how is the connection between if you don't mind me making this tangent jump between those two different colonies and Salem, if there is any. So Salem was part of the Massachusetts Bay uh, sphere of influence. Now, um, and eventually I should mention that Massachusetts Bay kind of expanded because they they kept, like the pilgrims came over, that was their little group. They kind of stayed mostly to themselves, whatever. Hmm. Um, numbers did not add very much. Um, a few people left Mass Bay to go join in the Plymouth area. But as time went on, Mass Bay kind of spread out of just greater Boston. They did establish other settlements along the Northeast coast, including Salem. And then they kind of merged uh, down along the uh, the South shore as well. And eventually kind of reached Pilgrim. And many years later, um, they kind of all got subsumed under this Massachusetts concept. But um but Salem was part of Mass Bay, so that was under the the Puritan theocracy, um, where you know committing a religious crime was a crime against the state, um, including witchcraft. Uh, however, it, it was interesting that it, in some ways, that Salem, the Salem witch trials uh, situation of 1691, like that, that really kind of ended a lot of what was going on with the that's how it seems to to me as an outsider reading about especially fiction wise yeah i mean it wasn't it wasn't like an immediate thing like oh gosh we need to stop this uh, right now yeah this is this is an atrocity <laughs> but i i think that there was definitely a um a, a kind of a an uh-oh moment when they saw how things were getting out of control 
um, and whether it was you know the, all the leading figures in that in that era, Cotton Mather and and whatnot, um, I think they they kind of saw how uh, things had gotten a little um, to the point where the civil society and the, the religious society being so intertwined was not serving the best interests of the colony. And so between 1691 and, and 1713, give or take, um, you had some reforms that occurred within the Massachusetts Bay Colony, uh, a little more in terms of, it was still a puritanical kind of a place, but um, a, a little more in terms of establishing themselves as a commercial society. And it was also the um, the time when you saw things like the interests in whaling and shipping and shipbuilding and um, transatlantic trade really starting to take off. Um, so you know, Boston as a port city really start to bloom as well. Yeah, um, and you, and you had other other ports. You had um, the uh, um, all along the North Shore, especially, uh, we had a whole bunch of whaling towns in there. Um, right. Demand for things that they could provide, like whale oil, um, shipbuilding, uh, and and there was more trade between the colonies by the early 1700s. Um, so you have to remember the connection to what's going on in British history because um, it's all intertwined. Absolutely. And, so from 1651 to 1660, roughly, you have the English Civil War. And during that period, there was very little uh, going on between the British government and um, certainly any of the the non-royal colonies. So Massachusetts... They were very focused on their homeland. Yeah, they had a civil war going on. They, were, they had, And then the, when the Cromwells came to power, they were not very much... Um, you know the, the the decade of the 1650s when the Cromwells were in charge, clearly not focused on America, um, and even from 1642 on uh, during the period of the Civil War, there was just not not that kind of uh, oversight. So the Americas were really left alone for a period of you know almost two decades, and that's right, when you have very light taxation. You have you have not a lot of uh, not a lot of regulation. Yeah. regulation right. not a lot of anything um the only exceptions like you had some um you know some trade back and forth some immigration in fact you had a lot of people trying to flee the english civil war coming to america um mm. but in terms of like the, the the british imposing their will like we saw in, in the seven mid 1700s um they had bigger fish to fry. I mean, American colonies were still a very, very remote outpost and trying to micromanage them from far while they had a civil war going on just wasn't going to happen. So you had that period. And then in the post, uh, when you had the restoration in 1660 with Charles II. Um, How quickly does it head home? Um, well, you had a little bit more of a... a um, consolidation of power in 1664 was when uh the the british kicked the dutch out of new netherlands um okay but in that general era um uh, the six 
Charles II was king from 1660 to 1685, if I'm remembering my years correctly. Um, and uh, he, that 25-year period was um, was really when you started to see a lot of, of commerce between the colonies. Uh, tar and pitch from North Carolina were mm. huge shipbuilding in New England. That kind of trade within the colonies all kind of emerged. And a lot of it had to do with the fact that there was not a lot of um, interference with what was going on in the new world kind of had to rely on themselves. And they, and particularly the Eastern colonies became very self-reliant. And so that's why, I mean, you start to look at the roots of the revolution and where they, where things really started to go a little bit off the rails. Um, it, you have to kind of have to look at the rule of James II, uh, which was okay. 1685 to 1689. Um, and during that period, it, you kind of got a little foretaste of what was going to happen later. Um, okay, that's a very short period. So it, it is. Well, he, he got kicked out. He, James II, okay. not a okay. not a well loved king, um, and uh, he he tried to um, really exercise his power to uh, degrees that he got it unadvisable. He tried to consolidate. Um, New York, which was a royal colony, uh, and create what he called the Dominion of New England. He put a particular um, uh, well, badass governor in there named Edmund Andros, who was uh, really very um, harsh in executing the rule of the the crown, whatever whatever the British government wanted, he would do. Mm. Um, and it was to the point where the uh, the colon, the average colonists were really fed up with that. Fortunately for them, James II was kind of doing the same thing all over the place, including back at home in England. Um, and the the nobles who had kind of established themselves um, as the sort of guardians of the restored monarchy um, after the the period of the English Civil War realized this was not a good thing that james ii was wildly unpopular and that they left him in there you might have another revolution and they certainly didn't want that um you know wars especially civil wars are not not good for business and certainly not good for the ruling nobility um so no they, and at that point you have an extremely big empire that you're trying to maintain yeah so that was the the 1689 was the glorious revolution where they actually invited William of Orange, um, who would, had, was in the Netherlands at the time, um, and his wife Mary to come to and become the rulers of England as well. And so you had William uh, III and Mary II, William and Mary, take over. And that kind of eases those tensions. They, they back down on a lot of what James II was doing. And then you have a period of relative harmony. Um, in the early 17 from 1689 up through um, really the start of the French and Indian war where, um, right. you know, you're starting to see the, the commercial trades uh, of America really develop and each colony kind of has its own things that is producing still largely agrarian, but that period of relative peace and stability is, is very helpful. There were some, there were a few small little wars, some skirmishes, things like that, um, some problems with Native Americans. But 
by and large, there's no great global war during that era um, that's affecting mm. uh, affecting what's going on in, in America. And so when uh, we finally get to the, the period after the French and Indian War, and you start seeing some of the, the little hints of tyranny kind of creep back in like they had seen under James II, you know, the, part of why the colonists probably want to put their foot down quite so hard was that they realized, you know, we need to, we, we don't want to let this get out of control. We're not going to stand for this again. Uh, yeah, definitely. And uh, so you start to see taxation really take a hike after that French and Indian war. Do you think that if they instituted it earlier, like during that early 1700s time, as business was starting to show its flowering, do you think if they started instituting it a little bit earlier and less brazenly, maybe that it would have led to a lesser conflict, if any conflict at all? Or do you think it was steaming under the pot so much? I think that there was a uh, a little bit of a, I think people get used to certain things. And if the times are good mm-hmm. and they're, you know, making money and there's a little bit of a, an impost duty on something, they're probably not going to raise as much of a red flag um but one of the the great uh you know ironies i suppose is that uh, we think about the you know the everybody knows about the the boston tea party and the tax on tea Mm -hmm. but i mean these were not i mean the the colonists would look at what we're paying today and and be flabbergasted because these were not heavy import that's where i was going to lead this conversation into my friend (laughs) i mean the the stamp act the um the all of the revenue acts that occurred in the the 1760s like we're talking about very very minor you know tariffs and import duties and things like that i mean for all the hyperbole that surrounded it there really was not a you know yeah the notion that americans were being squeezed of their last farthing um by hmm. heavy British taxation, uh, the average American would have had to have drank a gallon of tea a day to pay one dollar in tax in the whole year. So I mean, we're not talking about crazy import duties. Um, and the, uh, in fact, the Tea Act itself that, that led to the the Boston Tea Party actually reduced the tax on tea. Uh, I remember reading about that, and I was uh, what would it? <laughs> What gets lost in it, what what angered the colonists was a two-part thing. Number one is that it granted a monopoly to the British East India Company. Hmm. And there was, even though it lowered the prices, it was this notion of monopoly and British like control over them that they didn't like. And, second, and also the threat that it was going to be carried out much more stringently without any sort of overlookings at this point. We're going to be able to bribe the officers anymore. That is true, that there was a lot of smuggling that went on. And so um, the fact that they were part of that was, yes, you, you we're going to reduce the tariff on tea. It's going to be cheaper for you, but you got to buy from the British East India Company. You have to pay yeah. your, own, your own stuff in from, from the West Indies. You got to use our company. And, and that really was the source of the anger. Um, and hmm. so if, if anything, it, it, we tell it as the story of taxation as the um, – this sort of driving influence, but really it was the notion of government control and monopoly that mm. was the really the instigating point there, and um, something that maybe we should have uh, 
considered a little bit more when uh, you you see the government getting involved in uh, major industries and things like that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's uh, John. I think you just left it at a, a great point that maybe we could do a little bit of a uh, little bit of bonus content. We're almost an hour in. Uh, oh, really? Yeah. You yeah, you just blew my mind on American history. At least answered a few questions that I've had for quite a while. Um, I wanted to open the floor to you at least to see if you wanted to, I don't know, is there anything on your mind, Dr. John? Well, you know, I think uh, when you uh, were asking me about this, <laughs> all these historical topics, uh, mm. um, we kind of just did that on the fly. You know, I didn't really prep any of that stuff. So if I got any, if I got any names, dates, places wrong, uh, my my apologies. I, I think I got them mostly right. Um, and, uh, it was I very did. impressive. I think your your uh, your memory served you very well. I, I did teach that period of history for quite a number of years, so I, I think I got the dates pretty much down. Um, but when we talk about teaching history, I, I think mm -hmm. one thing that we lose, um, and it's it's a, an incredibly important point, I think one thing we do terribly is the the sense of temporal continuity, um, that okay. there is, that there's one time period leads into another, into another. When Whenever you ask, you know, there's that, Old question why do we study history and then the the very lazy answer well we don't want to repeat the mistakes of the past we repeat the mistakes of the past all the time it's it's we do it over yeah. and over again that's not the reason for studying history the the reason for studying history i mean it's, there's many reasons but i mean one it's a great story number two it's you have to if you look at it as that continuity you you can see how things like cultural patterns settlement patterns influence everything about where we are today from mm. from politics to music to culture to patterns of speech to um to the way we think and vote and when we we kind of do everybody a real disservice when we do kind of the um uh, uh, highlights the, the cliff notes version of history and uh a number of years ago uh when i when i went through the new jersey public education system Seventh grade was uh, American civics, whole year on civics. Wow. Eighth grade was geography, whole year on world geography, U.S. Mm -hmm. geography, world geography. Great foundational skills that helped you understand the government, helped you understand where our, our ideas and of laws and whatever came from. Same thing with geography. Where are things? Understanding what grows in the South, what grows in the North and understanding the crop. Well, that sets you up for actually understanding when you got to high school and you did US one in sophomore year, US two in junior year. If you, if you did AP Gov, that would probably be junior, senior year. You have that those foundational skills that can lead you to the understandings you needed uh, as a high school student. Then uh, somewhere in the, I want to say it was, probably the period when I was in college, right around 2000-ish, to some 2001, that general time period. They, right before you started teaching. Right before I started teaching. They said, you know what, that's history and, and or civics and geography. They're, they're boring. You know, set, middle school kids have a short attention span. We, you know, we can't keep teaching them this. We need to, like, do something more interesting. So let's, let's teach them the fun points of American history. So they basically built a whole two-year curriculum. Seventh grade did essentially the U.S. one years, and eighth grade did the U.S. two years. 
And they kind of did this very scattershot version of history where it's like, let's talk about Bunker Hill. Like, you know, don't fire until you see the whites of their eyes. And then, oh, okay, now let's let's just skip over Andrew Jackson because that was complicated. Let's go to the civil. You are recalling my whole education. And so it was this, it, it became this very like disjointed and event-based concept of what history was all about. Mm. And so these very same people who say, oh, history isn't about remembering names and dates and all this kind of stuff made it into this like kind of like, I don't know, um, little vignette style thing of, okay, let's talk about the 1700s. Let's talk about the mid 1800s. Let's talk about the, this and that. It all without, just felt like a crash course to me. Yeah. It, without really having that sense of continuity of how one thing leads into the next, because it's all absolutely, especially in, once you get into the American experience, I mean, the the period from 1763 through mm. certainly, I mean, I, I would say the present, but I mean, absolutely through 1871, um, mm. two, is like, as connected as you could possibly be. And so to not understand what's going on, how the population is changing, where it's moving, where new immigrant groups are coming from, how states are at being added to the union. Yes, the messy wars that occur, and sometimes they're they, you know, don't make the big headline. Nobody's making movies of the the Mexican-American war these days, but um, you know, it's like, ooh, it's Revolutionary War. We got the Patriot Civil War, we got you know, gods and generals or Lincoln or whatever, um, World War II, saving private Ryan. But like, there's a lot of other things that went into the periods in between. And when we overlook those periods in between, we miss that sense of temporal continuity. So I think mm. one, that's one huge thing. And the other thing is, I think that the, the, the way we approach, um, it's unfortunate that in a lot of cases, I've seen history classrooms that have now kind of defaulted to highlighting the problems with America and the problems with history. And there's there's obviously a lot of history that is problematic in all sorts of ways. I mean, you you look at everything from mm -hmm. slavery to the the Native American removal to uh, you know civil rights, women's rights. Like, there's all sorts of things that you can point to as faults of the country. But without the without that temporal continuity of what's been going on, where were things in seventeen wherever? Where were things in eighteen wherever? How how were these right. things progressing? Because if we think of things as like you know like as if nobody ever thought about women's suffrage until the nineteen tens, and then you know we had Susan B. Anthony and Carrie Nation and this like all the stuff going on, and then all of a sudden protest movement and boom their suffrage it, it's kind of like really cheapens the value of the overall movement towards mm -hmm. equality and how individual states had already gone down the road of, of suffrage and electing women and and it misses that fact um mm. so there was an awful lot that I think we do we do wrong in history and, and when people look at it through various lenses and say like I'm going to you know the the one that everybody's talking about right now is like the critical race theory thing, although I don't I mean 
it def I've seen it play out in some classrooms somewhere. I don't think it's quite as prominent as all, um, you know, some of the commentary might suggest, but there's a lot of history that's being taught through these various lens. I mean, everybody has a lens, like whether it's a, you know, a, a more political lens, a social lens, whatever, like everybody's got their, their certain bent to it. Some, some right. textbooks even actually have like a set of chapters where they tell political history and then another set of chapters where they go into the social history. Uh, I kind of like the ones that manage to merge it a little bit better. Um, but when we're only looking at things through um, a critical race or critical feminist type of approach, it really... Um, Your scope gets pretty narrow. Well, it undermines the one of the, the core values of education, which is understanding what it is about our society that makes America and the American experiment exceptional. And if if everybody's just taught that, you know, our entire history is, you know, the history of a bunch of misogynistic, racist, you know, thugs who um, should just be ignored. We, we miss out on so much and we miss out on all the intellectual threads that that got us from a monarchical, um, essentially tyrannical society where you had absolute rule in Europe to an American society that is not perfect, but that is a republic, that is a government of laws that is a the model for literally hundreds of other founding documents around the world. Mm. Like I was in down in Charlottesville not terribly long ago, went to Thomas Jefferson's house, and they have a whole museum there, and they have mm. a, a wall with like the, the all the countries that have their systems of government are inspired by the Declaration of Independence, and it's, right. it's a very very long list. And so if we if all we do is tear down America, we, we miss out on the really rather remarkable story that got us to where we are. And I think that that was something that was a, a major factor in American education. And, a, and a, you know, it's, there's there's one thing about blind patriotism and, and and all that. But I think that when we. um when the institutions that we've established are actively constantly trying to, you know, tear it down, it's, um, it's really, a, it's, it's kind of a shame and it's a missed opportunity to build a, a stronger and better future. I couldn't put it into better words myself, Dr. John. Uh, it, I think uh, everything that you're saying right there has a lot of merit, especially with people who are in and on the ground and listening to these subjects and trying to keep an open mind. And I think a lot of the problem, especially in everyday dialogue with with everybody, is that they've, in my opinion, at least, it seems like everybody's picked a side and went to extremes on the issues, especially in regards to like the education when you're talking about uh, critical race theory or when you're talking about just racism in general or racist cops or, you know, uh, defunding the police was a big one. Right. So these issues, people take the extreme stance and you have no dialogue in the middle. When whenever I've talked to anybody with dialogue in the middle, it seems like we all pretty much agree on mm -hmm. at least ninety-five to ninety-nine percent of the the ground. I think that the the average people, I think there's a, a 
decent amount of agreement. I think that, you know, you look at when you go to places like, I mean, you see all the, the craziness going on in San Francisco and all that. Like, I think your mm-hmm. average person on the street in San Francisco doesn't approve of, you know, shoplifting and looting and, you know, people, you know, really defiling the city um, the way that it has been. And yet politics has become such a um, red versus blue team sport that, you know, you have to pick a side. And if, if you're, if your side happens to like, it's like there, there is a, there should be a common middle ground that does not involve, um, you know, having complete chaos like you've got in mm. some places like San Francisco and, you know, the the notion that the other alternative is some type of theocracy where, you know, if you don't go to church, you're thrown in jail or something like that. I don't know what the... Uh, I, I, I don't quite. I don't get the uh, the leftist mindset quite as much. So yeah, I don't. I don't really know what they think is going to happen, but um, mm. but there's definitely a red versus blue feel to it, and I think it's it seems to be exacerbated on the coasts, from what I can tell. Um, I think that mm. when you, one thing I will say about the Midwest, um, maybe just Midwestern people are just more pragmatic in some respects but um yeah i think if you go to a city like um indianapolis which has had republican mayors it's had democratic mayors over the last you know 20 years um it kind of flips back and forth every few very few cycles um stuff gets done you know and and one mayor starts a project the other mayor finishes it even if it's a different party and there is there's not that the stonewalling and, and trying to throw mud on each other all the time. And, and the notion that if, if one side comes in, we have to undo everything that the other side did. Um, right. But then again, they're not doing extreme things either. They're like like building bike lanes or something like that. It's like, oh, okay, well, we started it. Let's finish it. <laughs> it's, right. It's much more pragmatic than like, let's, you know, just not prosecute shoplifting or whatever. Yeah, I, I think uh, issues like that are definitely going to start stemming in. Uh, I did have a, an interesting conversation with my co-host, Andrew, you met last time, and I actually did want to bring this up in the regular show before we ended it. Um, so legislation like that is starting to come into us, and one of the examples I brought up was environmental legislation that's coming down specifically on uh, like handheld tools. So we're not going to be able to be buying, especially commercial use, you're not going to be able to buy new gas-powered motors coming, I believe, either next year or 2025. So these, in my opinion, radical uh, radical policy changes, those are the ones that I actually would like to see stopped. Those are the ones I would like to see reversed. So in some situations, I do believe that stuff is kind of called for. Um, you know, I'm looking at it through my lens, like you kind of mentioned before. So some people would look at it as a fantastic move, but uh, that's where some of those situations I think it is called for, especially in a place like maybe New York or New Jersey, where it seems like some damage has been done that needs to be repaired. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I think there's like some of the legislation that New Jersey has passed over the last few years has just been absurd. And um, especially post COVID. 
you know, fingers crossed that we have a little bit of a pendulum. I mean, most most politics is a story of pendulum swings back and forth, and mm-hmm. and we are absolutely due for one here in New Jersey. Um, and uh, I don't know if we're going to get it, but we'll uh, we're due for it. Um, the, the one thing about that though is that really all all they're doing. I mean, if if in New Jersey they decide we're going to ban the sale of elect of uh, you know gas power vehicles by 20 whatever Mm. well you know what there's a lot of new jerseyans who are just going to go buy their cars in pennsylvania and Mm -hmm. you know and once it becomes your personal property the state can't prevent you from bringing it in so right yeah yeah exactly no i mean that's what's going to happen you're going to have people who wait just right up to the deadline and buy their last one you're going to have it's going to be all of this stuff and and like like you're talking about these tools, like if they're you can't buy them in New Jersey, but they're still for sale in Texas. Well, guess what, boys? We're doing a road trip. And we're gonna go. We're gonna go restock all of our equipment. And right, we're gonna we're gonna stock up for the next year or two. Yep, exactly. No, that's that's what you're gonna see. And hope that uh, what I would just hope is because I don't mind the shift to electric tools and equipment and cars even, but make the investment on the infrastructure first. Don't think about it after. Make the investment on the infrastructure first before you make jumps on forcing decisions on consumers. Yeah, I mean, I've seen uh, a couple of times I've been on been traveling, and it's like I see rental car companies where it's like you have the option of like, oh, one of the options is an electric car. Mm -hmm. I'm like, you know, I wouldn't be opposed to trying one, but if I've got to go catch a flight and I don't know where I can charge this thing up and I have to bring it back fully charged or something. I mean, like, and you've never been through that process before. Yeah. And I'm in a game, but I don't know if, if, you know, if there's not, I mean, if, if there's a, if they were as available as gas stations are, meh, okay, maybe. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily want to take the time to sit there and wait for it to charge, but, mm-hmm. but if I knew I could do it quickly and efficiently and whatever, I would maybe try it. But if I'm in, you know, Virginia and I've got to catch a flight at noon and I'm running out of a meeting and I've got to like figure out how to charge the stupid car and whatever and find a station where I can charge it. No, thank you. I'm, you know, like now yeah. someday if the infrastructure is there, that's a different story. But, um, right. but really I think that whatever happens, like my other big issue with, with where we are politically in this country is that way, way, way too much is happening by executive order. And these regulations issued by agencies that are not elected, that are not accountable, that have, you know, you look at what Biden's EPA is doing, what their Department of Energy is doing, you know, nobody is asking them to get rid of gas stoves. And yet, you know, they're talking about regulating this stuff. Um, right. Climate purposes or something. Um all that is is a hidden is a it's a tax. It's whenever you're requiring people to go spend more to buy something else and to make choices that they otherwise would not have made, it's a tax. And but I think it's worse than a tax though, because it's a tax that we we all know, or I should say at least a decent amount of us know, the money's just going right into your buddy's pockets. That and it's also and it's the tax taxation is only supposed to originate in one place, and that's the House of Representatives. House writes a tax bill, they vote on it, Senate approves it. That's the process for how a tax should be implemented. And have how- do you know how long ago that ship has sailed? I know oh, we're gosh. pushing so far into time, but I, I think it's yeah. worth it. 
taxes like taxes have seemed like they've gone off the rails in my lifetime but it seems like the way that you know especially speaking to my father who's done a lot of business and being in business with him um speaking with him on his experience over about 40 plus years he said it just keeps getting worse it's never really gotten better no and really the regulatory state um emerged dramatically in like the the depression um new deal era because you had all these okay. new so pre pre world war 2 largely yeah i mean that's where the at least the agencies and stuff were created during that period of time and then hmm. some of it actually was exacerbated by the war because you had regulations issued not by the congress but based on wartime needs like rationing and things like that which were i think people generally went along with it because they knew it was for the war effort but it was something that it wasn't like congress voted on uh you know rationing food stamps it was just an edict from the war department and then after the war was over and that wartime emergency had ended the government never really i mean they, they backed down on some things like the gasoline rationing but it didn't really uh they never quite gave up their power of regulation and and certainly in the 60s 70s 80s it just has kind of kept getting more and more significant and it's happening at the state level now too where you're having hmm. uh, authorities and agencies issuing policy that in some ways they're, they're, all the government is doing the the elected legislators they just authorize the department of such and such to go make regulation and then they wash their hands of it They're like okay well we took care of that and then they, they leave it to the department of whoever to go write these regulations and so the people who and are actually no oversight yeah the people who are writing the regulations are people that we've never heard of they have no oversight no accountability no nothing um and so i, I mean I'm, I'm not saying that we like i understand there are certain regulations that make sense um that are in people's best interests and all but they should still you know congress should have to vote on them somebody has to be held accountable when things don't go well because you don't like a regulation what do you get a comment period you've got a you got 30 days to submit your comments which then get ignored anyway and they're going to go do what they want and until then certainly next, how it feels and then the next administration comes in and they reverse some of the policies and then and i think part of why it has become so much a red team versus blue team thing is because they know that whoever gets to appoint all of these you know unelected commissioners and chiefs and this and that they're the ones who are actually making all the policies and they're going to either put in their policies or reverse the last administrations and all this kind of stuff. Um, whereas like if Congress passed something, it would be a little bit more like, you know, you know, Hey, we voted for these people. They passed this bill. We don't like it. We can vote them out next time um, or put pressure on them to go vote, you know, to change their mind because they're right. accountable to us. And without that level of accountability, I think things are, are only going to get worse. Yeah. And I think there's too many people that don't have the best interest of all Americans at heart. They have their own interests at heart mm -hmm. and their best friends and people that they are underneath them. And that's fine. But you're not looking out for the whole country as a whole. And when you're delegating your power as somebody who is looking out or supposed to be looking out for the country as a whole, mm -hmm. it sells out us Americans who voted for you. Yep, that's exactly how we feel. Well, and I think you're also seeing that the 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 
the scale of our economy is such that uh, a lot of big businesses actually benefit from the more intense regulation. Well, they can weather the storm. Walmart can uh, adapt. Like if you stop selling incandescent light bulbs in New Jersey. Walmart says, okay, you know what? We'll just call this other supplier and we'll get all the whatever they are, the compact fluorescence or whatever, whatever's allowed now. Uh, no problem. You know, the mom and pop store that's got a whole bunch of incandescent bulbs in inventory. Well, you know what? Now they're out of luck and they're that's who gets hurt by these kinds of things. Um, and the, you know, the, if we want to bemoan the the rise of big business and at the expense of the mom and pop store regulations play a huge factor in that because it's just hard. Right. I mean, you look at, I mean, I, I'm the president of a very, very small nonprofit that does a, a academic competition and it's there's still like we've got to file annual reports. We have tax returns. We have you know um, tax paperwork for for um, we have a non-employee contractor. Like you got to take care of all this stuff, and it's a, it's a lot of work. And this is for like a, the tiniest of tiny things that has like one part-time non-employee contractor actually working right. for. It. It's still there's regulations involved. Um, and we don't make any money either. It's a completely nonprofit. In fact, we're, we're really nonprofit. So uh, <laughs> we are a negative anti-profit. <laughs> we are, uh, yeah. Um, but but yet we still have to file all this this regulation stuff. And um, right. it, a lot of it's like, is this really is this really necessary? Is this the exactly? Is this what government is supposed to be doing? And to jump back to maybe i'll make a final point here and I'll let you, then i'll let you wrap up we talk about teaching history and teaching education we teach about civics we say okay if we every classroom i ever visited you see these exercises like okay let's let's simulate making laws or let's sure. like let's write our own school or classroom constitution and what is it always about it's what you know, okay, we can we can do this, or we're going to make a rule that you can't do that. We can make a rule that you know, whatever. Whereas our actual constitution doesn't say you can't do things. It's all about what you can do. You can do. You know, yes. these are rights that you are entitled to, rights that are you know based on natural rights that you are given by God. Here is what you are allowed to do, and government's not going to get in the way. And we absolutely just like we are terrible about civics education because we completely miss the point. We make it all about passing laws and laws or restrictions, and that's what what governments are supposed to do. That is not what governments are supposed to do, and we've kind of lost that. And that's uh, one of many issues I think we we definitely need to improve on in the way we teach social studies. <laughs> yeah, I love that it's called social studies now. Way to end it, John. Uh, this was wonderful. Everybody, if you have not seen our first two episodes, I think they might help out with a little bit of continuity. Uh, other than that, I mean, I, I can't wait to have you back on for more history talk and just to pick your brain again, because like I said, I know I said it a few times already, but you you kind of opened my brain up quite a bit. You definitely answered a lot of questions and uh, I have quite a few more that stemmed already. So I can only imagine how far we could take that conversation. I love talking history. I, I could tell. Uh, <laughs> you studied it and you enjoy it and you can tell that you're very passionate about it um 
And I think it goes to show also how important it is having having a pro-America educational system you're allowed to criticize, but also point out its its successes. Just the way that you have, I think, if somebody really listens to it with an open mind and just listens to some of the things you said, they get very inspired that America can can be possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, uh, that's that's really all I got for everybody today. I hope you guys enjoyed. Like I said, go check out the first couple. And John, I will see you on Sunday. Sounds great. Thank you for having me. All these bitches say, damn, I wish I were the fucking state. I want to be something, not nothing. Trapped inside my dream and I'm running. Running away from these demons. But the feeling's so good, I'm going to keep dreaming.